Well, this morning, our topic for our teaching time is the cosmic war or the spiritual battle or the seen and unseen realms. So if you came this morning needing something light and fluffy, I apologize. Just kind of brace yourself because <laughs> this is not it. Um, what I want us to see this morning over the next few minutes uh, is something that is a lot of information from Scripture. But what I want us to see is that this anchors us. This gives perspective and shapes our understanding of who we are in this world and what we are a part of. What I want us to see this morning is that choosing to live life with God under the rule of God places us directly in a war that's being waged against God. Let me say that again. Choosing to live life with God under the rule of God places us directly in a war that's being waged against God. It is a struggle that is real. It's a struggle that we experience as people every single day, both internally and externally. And it's a struggle that we participate in with God, that we as followers of Jesus have been called into by God. A couple caveats before I dive in here. Um, as I said, this is a, this is a lot. Um, we're going to see a lot of scripture up here on the screen. So feel free to read up here. Feel free to follow along on your phones or in your hard copy. Um, this is a lot. And just because of time constrictions, I don't have the ability to connect all of the dots and fill in all of the blanks. Um, what I want to do is really just to define some common terminology, words that we use, things that we, words that we see throughout the scriptures. Um, but more than anything, I want to give us a big picture view of what's going on. I want us to be able to see what is happening and why and how we are a part of this cosmic war, this spiritual battle. Also, some things are going to feel incomplete. Uh, partly, as I mentioned, because of the time constraints, partly because I'm still learning a lot about this. And so I'm not going to probably be able to communicate everything as effectively as I want to. But also because the Bible leaves a lot of this incomplete. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of, um, of, of things that the Bible doesn't give us the full picture of. And we have to be okay with that. But as I wrap up this morning, what I want from our conclusions, from our applications, kind of our takeaways, what does this mean for us? That is going to be rooted in what we do know, what we can see clearly from the scriptures. And what I'm teaching here this morning is connected to a workshop that we're hosting next Saturday morning. Uh, myself and Chris Rogers are going to spend some time talking about what this means for us to engage in a very real and practical way in this spiritual battle. I think we, we, think to, we tend to think in pretty straightforward terms about these kind of things. You know, we think of, you know, there's God and there's Satan, there's angels and there's demons. 
But the biblical writers have a much more nuanced view of what is happening in the spiritual realms, a view that I think is more robust and more accurate than our own. We, um, for all of the great things about growing up in Western civilization, our ability to live in the tension between the spiritual and the physical, to see how the spiritual connects with our physical world, that is not one of our strengths. And so as Western Christians, this is an opportunity for us to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world who live in different cultures and have different perspectives, who are able to live more in this tension and to see the world in these terms. I want to start this morning in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapters 1 through 11. This first section of Genesis, these first 11 chapters, maybe with the exception of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, are the most foundational passages in the whole Bible. We we find more foundational truths about who God is, who we are as people, and this earth this creation that we are a part of in this part of the Bible than anywhere else. Let me read these verses here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I want to focus for a minute on two Hebrew words that we find there in verse 2. The first word is tohu, which we translate without form. And the second word is vavohu, which we translate empty or void. What we see here in these first two verses is that when God created, this earth was unordered and uninhabited. It was an uninhabited creation. It was an unordered creation. And what we see happening throughout the rest of the first chapter of Genesis is God addressing those two things. In days one through three, God orders an unordered world. He separates the light from the dark. He separates the waters above the atmosphere from the waters below the seas and the oceans. He separates the waters from the dry land. God orders an unordered world with time, space, and land. And in days four through six, God begins to fill this uninhabited creation with inhabitants. He creates lights to separate the day from the night. He puts creatures in the skies and in the seas. He puts creatures on the dry land, the pinnacle of which are human beings, God's image bearers to rule over the land and the sea. Well, you may be asking, what what does this have to do with spiritual warfare and spiritual beings? Let me draw your attention to these verses right here. Verses 14 through 17. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. 
And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. In verse 14, God puts lights in the sky And these lights are called signs or symbols, meaning they point to something else. These these lights in the sky point to something greater. But also in verse 16, we see that these lights are given authority to rule over the day and to rule over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. What's interesting to me is when we read these verses, we see that these lights are doing the same thing that God did earlier in the chapter. They're ruling over the day and the night. They're separating the light from the darkness. This is where we first see the biblical writer's understanding of spiritual beings and how they talk about spiritual beings throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Lights in the sky are portrayed here as heavenly rulers. Their authority given to them by their creator. This same kind of authority, the same kind of rulership that's given to God's image bearers on earth to rule with God's authority. Throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible, stars, the sun, the moon, They aren't just considered flaming balls of gas as as we consider them. But they are the primary image that the writers use for spiritual beings. They share in God's exalted status and they share in his authority over time and over seasons. In the Psalms in particular, we see this over and over again. Sun, moon, stars, physical symbols for spiritual beings that inhabit the heavenly realms and have authority under God. Let's look at a couple of examples of those. Psalm 148, 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. And then in Psalm 89, we get another picture. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord and a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? The heavens, the sun, the moon, the shining stars, mentioned in parallel to angels, hosts, heavenly beings. That phrase, heavenly beings, literally means the sons of God. The sons of God. What we see here is a picture of created beings that are not simply physical things that praise God simply through their existence but through their active worship, their active participation in what God is doing. For the psalmist, they've represented created spiritual beings worshiping the creator and doing his will. 
And what's interesting here in this passage in Psalm 89, two phrases, the assembly of the holy ones, the council of the holy ones. The psalmist is painting a picture of a council, a heavenly council, God's representatives honor him, carry out his purposes in the heavens and on the earth, which again parallels humanity and our purposes to be God's representatives, to honor him and to carry out his purposes on earth. Well, at least that's what we were supposed to do, right? What we also see in Genesis 1 through 11 are three rebellions, Three rebellions. The first you're familiar with. We see that in Genesis 3 and 4. Spiritual, we see this spiritual being. A divine council member in the form of a serpent. Luring humans into rebellion. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what we see here is this rebellion against God's authority. We see this figure, this serpent, questioning God's authority, questioning God's purpose and his design for his creatures. And we see a desire in the humans God created for wisdom other than God's. So God pronounces judgment first on this serpent. In verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We also see God pronouncing judgment on his image bearers, the humans, that because of their rebellion, they would experience death. They would experience separation. They would experience the creation in a way that is drastically different than what God intended. And we see that in chapter 4 of Genesis, where their children experience the consequences of this. Their son Cain kills his brother Abel. And the earth experiences the consequences over and over and over again of this first rebellion. The second rebellion we see in Genesis chapter 6, and this is where it gets a little weird and it gets a little wild. There are more council members, these sons of God that we see in Genesis, mentioned in Psalm 89, that rebelled, that tried to usurp God's creative intent by impregnating human women. Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive 
and they look at their wives, and they took their wives any they chose. Spiritual beings crossed into the physical world to work apart from God's will and to challenge God's authority. And God judges them by casting them into subterranean pits of darkness where they are imprisoned and will be imprisoned until the day of judgment. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 3. Who says the Bible's boring? <laughs> I mean, that's some crazy stuff, right? That's the second rebellion. The third and final rebellion that we see in this first section of Genesis, we find in chapters 10 and 11. Even more council members rebelled. They lured the people of uh, what was known as Babel, what came to be known as Babylon, into rebellion, resulting in the scattering of nations. That tower of Babel where God scatters them in judgment all over the face of the earth. And what we see in Deuteronomy chapters 4 and then in chapters 32 is that as God did this, he scattered the nations. He turned these nations over to the rebellious divine council members. In that same act that we see in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says that God turned humanity over to itself, turned humanity over to its own desires, we see that beginning here in Genesis 11. God says, you want to worship other gods? You want to worship these other created gods? Have at it. And he allots the nations of the earth to these divine council members. God gives them over to the gods they want to worship. But God chooses one nation for himself, for his own possession. And we see that in Genesis 12 through a man named Abraham. And that begins another story, another chapter in the story of humanity. So in these first 11 chapters of the Old Testament, we see so much happening here. We see from the beginning this conflict, and we see how this conflict between God and creation brewing and developing and taking shape. And I think a great summary is Psalm chapter 82, and we have that up here. Listen to this. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They neither have knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations." These divine council members failed to represent God. And instead, they were unjust. They were unrighteous in their authority. God had given them authority over the nations. And 
with the expectation that they would continue to represent him, that they would continue to rule and to reign over the nation in justice and with righteousness. And they did the opposite. And the psalmist says that it shook the foundations of the earth. You are sons of the Most High. You are sons of God. You were created for a purpose, but now, just like humanity, you will be judged. What's happening here helps us understand why God warned his own people not to worship other gods than himself. It helps us make sense of God referring to himself as the Most High God, the one true God. The idolatry, the worship of gods that we see throughout the Old Testament wasn't simply worshiping this figure of wood and stone or metal, but these figures represented spiritual beings, other gods that humanity was following after, that were influencing the world, the nations, leading humanity away from the one true God. What God intended was that these representatives, both on heaven, in heaven and on earth, honored him. They would honor him and do his work. But their spiritual rebellion precipitated humanity's rebellion. And even Israel, God's nation that he chose for himself, the people that he inherit, that, that would, uh, that would uh, reap in his inheritance, they would chase after these other gods. They would be lured into rebellion of their own. This conflict that we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures that we read about in the Old Testament between Yahweh, the one true God, and all of these lesser spiritually rebellious gods is carried forward into the New Testament by Jesus and his proclamation that the kingdom of God has arrived. This is a continuation. I mean, I think sometimes just in our brains, we have a hard time seeing the continuity between what we read in the Old Testament and what Jesus came to do. So when we understand this conflict that has been waging between God and his enemies since the beginning of our conception of time, what Jesus came to do, the things that Jesus taught, the way that he lived his life, the works that he performed, are all taking place in that context, with that perspective. Jesus came to confront evil and darkness, these spiritual powers head on. And he did it by going to what the New Testament writers portray as its source. And that source is, is found in one particular figure. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, after his receiving that public affirmation from his father, we read this in each one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And then in Luke... And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. 
I want to begin talking about this figure here by addressing some of the terminology that we see. Satan and devil, they aren't proper names. They both are preceded by the word the. The Satan is an English transliteration of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word. Did you, did you get all that? That Hebrew word, hasatan, the Satan. It's a word that refers to an adversary, an opponent, one who stands against. The Satan is a title that describes the function of this figure. This figure opposes. He is an adversary of God. The devil, that terminology, is a Greek word, diabolos, which means slanderer, accuser. Paul uses this word in both of his letters to Timothy to describe people in the church who are using malicious language and who are gossips. It's that same word a slanderer, an accuser. And in Jewish literature, by the time the Gospels were written, both of these terms were used interchangeably. And so that's why we see in these uh, first three Gospels, Satan and devil used interchangeably. Jesus, the most that he had to say about this figure is in John chapter 8. We've looked at this passage so many times because it is foundational to our understanding of who this figure is and what he does. Jesus, in rebuking the religious leaders of his day, revealed that his beef ultimately wasn't with them. It was with someone else. You are of, the fa- of your father, the devil, the accuser the slanderer, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus knew this spiritual rebel. Jesus knew that this spiritual rebel was here on this earth doing the same thing that he had been doing from the beginning. We know and we make this connection now that this was that serpent. This was that rebel in form of a serpent in in Genesis chapter 3 because then he was doing the exact same things. He accuses. He lies. He is the originator of lies. He has been lying from the beginning. He was the first opponent at work in God's creation, and he was Jesus' primary enemy. He lies. He's the father of lies. He accuses. He deceives. Look at what Luke says in chapter 4 during that temptation. The devil took him up and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I've read this and I've probably taught this kind of poo-pooing this. (laughs) Like who did the devil think he was? Who did he think? He didn't know who he was talking to. 
But when we understand the context, when we understand what's been happening since the beginning of time, we realize that the devil, this figure, was absolutely right. He has authority over the kingdoms of this world. His authority is delegated authority. Remember from Genesis 11 that God gave over the nations of this earth, the authority of those nations over to members of this divine council. That when God disinherited them, he chose Israel for his possession. And what the New Testament writers portray and what the, Luke records this figure saying and claiming is that he is the primary authority over the powers of this world, primarily the political, social, and religious powers of this world. This has implications for us as individuals. You're familiar with what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul referred to this divine rebel council as rulers, authorities, and powers. These powers are under the authority and the direction of the Satan, of the devil. And they work on corporate and systemic levels of societies and nations. And their influence brings about gross injustices and idolatry that brings about distortion and destruction for human beings on an individual level and throughout our societies. That's why Jesus, when he confronted the religious leaders in Jerusalem, connects their unjust practices, their immoral leadership, to the controlling influence of the Satan, of the devil. That what they were doing in leading their societies placing burdens and heaping burdens on people, leading people away from the one true God they were doing because they were under the direction, whether they knew it or not, of this figure, of these powers in the heavenly places. See, the devil isn't an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present figure, which means that he doesn't personally tempt and invade each one of our lives. It kind of goes against our, you know, not today devil mentality of thinking about how we engage in the things that we experience. What we need to know is that scripture tells us that this figure, this accuser, this liar works through a system of darkness. Powers. Other words that the scriptures use, de demons evil spirits. In Jesus's worldview, the oppression, the abuses of power, physical, mental illness was a sign of the world's captivity to the powers of darkness. That these things don't exist in a different realm. They don't exist in the abstract or in a vacuum. They are connected to the powers of darkness that have authority over this world that are at work in every level of society 
that are at work in our own lives. As Jesus healed the sick, as he cast out demonic presence and evil spirits, he understood that those acts were releasing those people from the power of darkness. Look at Matthew chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Mark chapter 1. Jesus himself declaring, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then what we see Mark recording in the rest of chapter one is Jesus exercising an unclean spirit, healing diseases and casting out many demons, cleansing a leper from leprosy. And then Jesus himself in Luke chapter four, when he came first to the synagogue, He unrolled these words from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. For Jesus, the announcement that the kingdom of God was here and the manifestation of that kingdom through his miraculous works meant abolishing the kingdom of Satan. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus' ministry of word and deed was setting up God's rule where the Satan's rule had previously been. When Jesus heals the sick, when Jesus casts out evil spirits, Satan's kingdom is departing and the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 12. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, or another word in that culture for this evil figure, by whom do do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now listen to this. But if the Spirit... But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. What is Jesus saying there? I have come to bind up the strong man so I can plunder his house. This world is his house. I am what what I am doing, what I am teaching, the miraculous acts that I am performing. I am binding up this strong man and I am taking over his house. All of Jesus's ministry was in direct conflict with the devil. 
This is how Jesus understood it. And this is how the New Testament writers explain it. The writers of Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. John, in his first letter, it doesn't get much clearer than this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Just so we're clear, this is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. Evil, sin, death. The words that the New Testament writers, Paul in particular, uses to talk about these works of the devil manifested in this world, evil, sin, death, both personally and in the world around us. The kingdom of God broke into this world through Jesus Christ to overthrow the kingdom of devil, of the devil, of the Satan. The kingdom of God broke into this world to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. The climax of this was Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember Genesis 1 through 3. God intended humanity to partner with him. Participation in his divine presence and participation in his divine rulership over this world. And that partnership included the gift of eternal life. They were created to live with God eternally. And God warned them very clearly how they could screw this up. That it, the, this specific behavior, eating of a, the tree, which represented rebelling against God, going a different direction, would ruin that gift that eternal life, that participation with him in his divine presence and divine rulership. And that's exactly what they did. They chose to join this rebel, this serpent, and God exiles them from the garden out into the dirt and the dust. From dust you were made and dust you will return. Genesis 3 introduces a plot line for the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. God's mission is to restore humanity's participation in his divine presence and his divine rule. To be truly image bearers of God again. And the solution to that, that problem, the way in which God says this is going to happen is through a new kind of human. A human that will come from the woman who will strike at the head of the snake, who will strike at the source of spiritual evil, but who will also experience the consequences in doing so of that evil himself. He will be struck by the snake. The Gospels present Jesus as this one in whom the biblical story reaches its goal. Jesus, over and over again, describes his own death and resurrection in these terms as a victory 
a victory that's foretold by Gen- in Genesis 3. In John 12, verses 23 and 24. I don't know if we have that. Yep. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Later on in verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this person, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then a few verses later, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus knew that only through experiencing death on behalf of a rebellious humanity could he overcome the powers of evil who hold the power of death itself. The resurrection of Jesus was the vindication of his death, was the vindication of his suffering, was the vindication of this choice to endure the consequences of evil and death because through it he received authority both on earth and in heaven. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 15. If we have that up there, I know that's a little small. Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then later on, these words from Paul Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this, imperish- for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see this language of victory? This is warfare language. This is God in Jesus declaring victory over his enemies, victory over death, authority over the heavens and the earth, the restoration of all creation, the the vindication of this war and God's engagement in it. That's how this is all going to end. That's how the end of the story has already been written. I know this is a lot. This is a lot of information. There's a lot of dots I wasn't able to connect here. 
But this is really important for us to understand. This gives us context for what we experience and the life that we have been given. You see, the evil that we see finds its source in an evil we can't see. We don't know how all of the evil spiritual powers work together, but we do know this. We do know that they have a common goal, and that is to oppose God and Jesus. And by extension, to oppose his people. That's why we experience what we experience in this world. That's why this world looks the way that it is. Because it is not under the control of God himself. It is under the control of God's enemies. Who are leading people away from life with God. Who are leading people out from under the rule of God. And who are causing people to experience the consequences of that. Let me bring us back to that big idea again. That life with God under the rule of God places us directly in a war that's being waged with God. Put it another way, following Jesus means participating in the overthrow of the devil's kingdom. That's what you and I who are followers of Jesus has, have been called into. Whether we like it or not, that's what we have been called into, is participating in overthrowing the kingdom of this world and bringing about the coming of God's kingdom. But here's the beautiful thing about this, is in that participation, we engage in this war with the presence and the power of God himself. Both in our own lives and as we engage in the world around us, we are doing it with the presence of God. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28 as he commissioned them. All authority has been given to me. I died, I rose from the dead. I have all authority on this earth and in heaven. Now go and make disciples. Go out and continue to do the things that I've done. Continue to teach the things that I've taught. And I am with you till the end of the age. In the meantime, between now and when that battle is won, I am with you. I am with you. My presence is with you and in you. My power is with you and in you. You and I participate in the overthrowing of the kingdom of Satan. How do we do this? I'll tell you how we don't do it. It's not through political power. It's not through military force. It's not through social pressure. It's by doing what Jesus did. It's by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Healing the sick. Restoring the oppressed. Giving to the needy. Speaking the truth. Forgiving those who have wronged us. Laying our lives down for one another. This is how we fight. We do not fight with the weapons of this world. We do not fight against the people of this world. We are engaged in a bigger battle. This is what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do. This is what we saw when we went through the book of Acts. This is what we saw the early church doing in their society. This is how God's kingdom comes. Through you and through me. There's an outward aspect to that. There's also an inward aspect to that. 
in order to engage outwardly in this world, we also have to be aware of how this war has affected us personally, internally. We have to be aware of what's inside of us, how lies and deceptions have shaped us unconsciously, how we interact with this world and with each other. We have to understand the trauma that has wounded us, the effects of sin and darkness that have caused pain and damaged us deeply. We have to understand that we bear the consequences of this spiritual conflict and God's power and his presence are available to us to deal with those things inside of us. And as I mentioned, this workshop that we're having on Saturday morning here, we're going to address some of those things. How do we begin to see that? How do we begin to root those things out and become aware of how the accuser, the deceiver, the slanderer, the liar has been at work in us? As we come to our time of communion, this is why we do this every single week. Because it reminds us, if you haven't had a communion cup, Tasia is passing those around for you. But we do this to remind ourselves and to root ourselves in this fact that Jesus had to die. That this war, this conflict, this rebellion necessitated that God himself take on human flesh and lay his life down. For us, experience the evil that we experience so that we could be restored into relationship with God, so that we could be in participation with God in His presence and in His rulership, in bringing about the kingdom of God on this earth. We do it understanding, looking back at the cross, but also looking forward to the day when Jesus will put all enemies under his feet, where he will declare victory, where he will give the kingdom fully and completely to his Father to rule and to reign for the rest of eternity. That is our hope, that in the meantime, our labor is not in vain. So let us be steadfast. Let us be immovable. Let us cling to these truths that this battle is won. We live in that reality as we continue to fight this war and participate with God in it each and every day. So let's do this together. Christ's body broken for us, his blood shed for us, so that we could be so that we could share in the victory of God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we bow our knee to you this morning. You are the ruler and the authority that we recognize as legitimate. We know and we experience in very real and personal ways the illegitimate rulers of this world. Our heart breaks for those who 
are under the oppression of evil, who are experiencing the consequences of darkness, and yet we rejoice that you have come to set the captives free. And we pray that for us, as we engage in this spiritual battle, both personally and in the world around us, that you would use this community, this church body right here to do these very things, to be about your work, to participate with you in healing and releasing, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, calling people and inviting people into relationship with you in very real and in very tangible ways. As you told us to pray, protect us from the evil one. As we fight this war, we pray for your protection. We pray for your power and your presence to be made real in us. We pray that we would forgive each other as you have forgiven us. We pray that we would seek daily bread from you and find our nourishment in you. And we pray your kingdom to come on this earth, in this city, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, as it is in heaven. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.